The following is a production of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary and is made possible by the generous financial support of our listeners and friends. For more information about the seminary, how you can support it, or applying to become a student, please visit gpts.edu. Hello and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. My name is Zach Groff and I'm your host. I'm also the Director of Advancement and Admissions here at the school and I have with me in the studio today, Dr. Ryan McGraw. Dr. McGraw, thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Zach. Dr. McGraw serves as academic dean and occupies the Morton H. Smith Chair in Systematic Theology here at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. He is a graduate of the seminary and is a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. He's pastored churches in South Carolina and his home state of California. He's been a professor here since 2013 and is the author of many books, but I've invited him into the studio today to discuss the voluminous output of another man's ministerial labors. The Banner of Truth Trust has recently republished the 22-volume works of English Puritan Thomas Manton. Manton ministered in England in the 17th century, and he's known for his, quote, extraordinary knowledge in the scriptures, end quote, as his colleague and friend William Bates testified on the occasion of Manton's funeral in 1677. And during my time here at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, I've noticed that not only is Dr. McGraw something of a subject matter expert on the Puritans generally, but that he has a particular appreciation for Thomas Manton. He has encouraged his students to read deeply of Manton's works and to look to Manton as a model of what the Puritans called experimental piety, and we'll get into that a little bit today. But before we dive into a brief discussion of the works, Dr. McGraw, can you tell us a bit about Manton himself? What would you say was his theological context broadly? Well, Manton basically lived during the middle of the 17th century in England, And my interest in Manton both goes back to my early days as a Christian when uh, Banner of Truth only had the first three volumes of Manton's sermons in print. And I took and bought those and devoured them and enjoyed them. And uh, what was available at the time was on Isaiah 53 and the temptation of Christ and a number of other important things. And as I was beginning in the ministry, I think initially Manton caught my eye as just one Puritan among others. And at the time I was doing some teaching on the temptation of Christ and uh, dealing with the Sermon on the Mount. And Manton addressed those issues in these first three volumes. And I was immediately struck by how thorough he was in his handling of the text, but also in his doctrine and searching application. So Manton had always sat in the back of my mind. Then as I did my PhD work on John Owen, I began to see a lot of overlap with Owen and Manton's name and Manton would often uh, come up. And what I quickly discovered was that uh, Manton was, in his time, uh, as widely respected, if not more so, as someone uh, like John Owen, and was uh, a moderate Presbyterian of sorts, but had a friendship with people like Owen on the one side and other people that Owen didn't get along with, such as Richard Baxter on the other side. And, uh, and there was uh, a point during the English Civil War, uh, in, well, afterwards, actually, in the 1650s, 
where Owen and Manton had a falling out over a particular misunderstanding about uh, Oliver Cromwell's successor, uh, Richard. So there was a lot of personal overlap and interaction. And, uh, and I began to see in the 17th century how widely respected Manton was. And so partly based on my own reading, partly based on how often his name came up, I began to do a lot more reading. And my general impression of Manton's writings are that uh, the, the depth of thought is virtually equal to someone like a John Owen. Uh, the style is actually better and easier to read and, and more illustrative, but Manton is more difficult for people to dive into because if you look through his works as a whole, almost everything comes out of large sets of sermons on particular chapters of scripture. So it's not the same thing, for example, as saying, I'd like to read a book on the Trinity and Owen has communion with God. It would be more like saying, if I want to get good Trinitarian theology, I've got to dig through Manton on John 17. Uh, so it's not as immediately appealing or user-friendly, but the level of thought, the quality, the content is at least equal to Owen, if not in some respects superior, especially in style. So when we're considering his theological context, one thing we need to keep in mind, and it's, it's something I commonly hear from you and from other historians operating in the, the longer 17th century and looking at the English Puritans and just the Puritan movement as a whole, is that these guys were flesh and blood. These were men. They had friendships. They occupied political uh, positions and interacted with a whole host of, of different men uh, to the right and to the left of them. And Manton is one who was able to be, at least for part of his life, a bit of a, of a middle-of-the-road kind of, um, at least politically, Puritan influence, being able to bridge that gap between Baxter and Owen and and even interact with uh, with men of varying persuasions while commanding respect. And, and as we read him and as we read others in the Puritan movement, what would you say would be some of the most important things to keep in mind then? Uh, what, what should we as readers bring with us um, to prepare ourselves to dive into Manton or even just any Puritan, Owen Baxter or anybody else? Well, as you said, the Puritans, including Manton, were not some group of idyllic superhuman figures that sometimes we think they are, and they were just uh, normal people. And one example that I give as, as a Presbyterian minister is uh, if, if you think about different Presbyteries that I've been a part of and served in, in theory, you would walk in and say, Everybody holds to the same confession of faith. Everybody's going the same direction, teaching the same things. And of course, uh, generally that's true. But each man has his own personality. Each one pastors his own church in his own particular setting. And uh, you know what happens to us is if we see something we perceive to be a problem, then we tend to try to overcorrect at times and only stress the other side or the opposite of the problem. And so uh, we become lopsided. And sometimes our ministries show our own pet issues because of the issues that we face. And I think that's true among the Puritans. 
At the same time, though, as as in our context, we have some people that are wiser and better at avoiding becoming lopsided. We have that with the Puritans as well. So if I can give a couple of examples, um, you know, I, I love Thomas Watson and recommend him highly. But Thomas Watson's pet peeve or main focus was antinomianism and people uh, disregarding the law of God in the Christian life, basically. And there are times where he was so zealous against antinomianism that in his sermons on the Beatitudes, for example, he actually misstates the doctrine of justification at one point, uh, somewhere around page 50-something, you know, so it's early on. And then later in the book, if you're reading through uh, both the content and one of the marginal comments, which which is put in the footnote, he actually becomes aware of it and corrects it and goes back and says, I, I misstated this and this is the true uh, way of approaching it. And I think you can begin to see how these are real people and uh, easily see how that would happen. Others are more mature and well-balanced and I would put people uh, like Owen, uh, to a large extent, Thomas Goodwin, and uh, Manton on that list. And so uh, Manton would be one, for example, in his context, who would have been deeply concerned with antinomianism, whereas somebody like uh, John Owen would have been more immediately concerned with Socinianism, which was, uh, among other things, an anti-Trinitarian heresy and a heresy that basically redefined the person and work of Christ, not just in light of the Trinity, but in a way that uh, we would say the gospel became a self-help program and, and pretty much uh, obeying God and standing before God largely in your own merits with grace covering up what you got wrong. And that's putting it a little bit too simply, but, uh, but you get the idea. And so while um, these people had different targets, sometimes it made them express themselves in different ways. And as I mentioned with the antinomian target, someone like a Watson even could become imbalanced at times. And one benefit of Manton is the care and the balance that you see. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones used to like to say that the problem with a half-truth is it's a complete untruth. And uh, with Manton, he doesn't give you the half that he thinks remedies the problem, but he gives you the whole picture and keeps things in balance in a, a wise, mature way. So when you're reading Manton, uh, you really do begin to realize that this would have been the man... Uh, in our context, to speak anachronistically, in, in our presbyteries, let's say, that uh, when he stands up to speak, everyone in the room opens their ears and stops talking and they want to listen. So I think that's a good reason to give our attention to Manton and, and see something of his context as well. That's really helpful. And you've even anticipated my next question. My next thought was, why is Manton important today? Why in the world would Banner of Truth Trust and other publishers before them uh, produce 22 volumes? I mean, that's an expensive endeavor, and it's it's a difficult kind of thing to sell even for booksellers. But but when, we, when, when I hear what you're saying about him, you've already answered the question of why Manton is important. We live in, in an unbalanced age. In fact, we live in 
some sense, an unhinged age, especially in an election year. We see this all over the place where you have people overcorrecting and, and just blatantly lying and slandering folks in order to get an edge. And, and Manton was so concerned with truth that he wasn't willing to do that. But something else you said about him, he was also very careful in his words and clear and sermonic because these works are, in fact, a collection of sermons. Yeah. And so even though he's he's taking on that difficult task of, of presenting the truth fully, he's also taking on the even more difficult task of presenting it clearly so as to be understood by, you know, people like you and me and, and our listeners and those in his pews in the days uh, when he was ministering. And so are there any other reasons, though, why you would encourage your students and our listeners to familiarize themselves with Manton's ministry and works? Or do we pretty much sum that up? I would say there are two major reasons why we would want to study Manton, or perhaps better, two major categories of reasons. And the first would be historical, and the second would be practical or personal. And as far as uh, historical, I think that Manton lived during a very unsettled time in English history. And the Westminster Assembly and the Westminster Divines and the English Civil War, Oliver Cromwell, to some extent John Owen, uh, all these topics and people have received increasing attention. To my knowledge, there's only one doctoral dissertation on Manton. Uh, there may have been more that have come up that I'm not aware of at this point, but, um, but I'm only aware of the one so far. And if nothing else from a historical standpoint, there is a huge gap with respect to somebody that was very significant uh, politically as well as in the religious context in, English at the, in England at the time and overlap with so many other people. So studying Manton's life itself is a window into the history of that whole time, especially because he was something of a moderate Presbyterian and a, a mediating figure. Some may not be that interested uh, in, in academic history in that regard, uh, but one thing I would say, and, and my caveat here is what I'm about to say is not for everybody, but for some people, who are interested in these kinds of studies and, and have the time and can profit from them. One advantage of studying someone like Manton from a historical, even academic perspective is that while no one is neutral, we can seek to be objective. And often with historical theology and church history, the most helpful thing that we can gain is objectivity. So in other words, we're not necessarily just looking for the heroes of the past and all the great and mighty works that they did that, that we either emulate or feel guilty that we never will emulate or can't. It's helpful to see these people as, as real people, but also to stand back and look at their ideas in their own context a bit more objectively. And, and think about it this way. If uh, you and I ran into each other and didn't know each other, and uh, we got into uh, a discussion of uh, some point of theology, let's say free will or something, and we disagree. The best thing for me to do and for you to do is objectively ask a bunch of questions. 
And before I say, well, Zach's wrong about free will, maybe I should say, what does Zach mean and why does he think this? And that way I can treat Zach fairly. And we can actually have a genuine conversation and I can build on what he's saying. And I would appreciate that. (laughs) (laughs) Not that Zach has a bad view of free will. That was just uh, what we were talking about before we got on air. So, Um, but, uh, but I think that's where the history is helpful. We put people in context and see them objectively in their own terms before we're seeking to either, uh, see our own reflection in the well of history, or we are, uh, just trying to use it for something else. So we need to hear people out before we can interact with their ideas, including historical Um, figures, including historical people. So them the same charity you would do a living friend. Um, and don't just twist them to your own ends. Um, and then the practical side of this is, uh, the sermon form, though it's harder to wade through and get to topics that you want. The form itself is more inducive to devotion because the author is purposefully aiming at a real congregation and aiming at their hearts. And as it were, with the sermons printed, we're looking over his shoulder into the heart of a 17th century pastor. Um, his illustrative material is is very good, uh, very memorable. I think uh, Spurgeon uh, even had a, a collection of things that he had gotten from, from Manton, if I remember correctly. I know he did that with Brooks and a few others, but, uh, but he has highly recommended Manton as well. Um, and, uh, and if you're going to use something like this though, and this probably gets into another question, but, uh, you'd have to, you'd have to plan ahead a little bit, you know, you'd either decide to read something because of a text of scripture that you love or stands out to you and you want to meditate upon it and use this to help you. Or if you're preaching through something he's preached on, like parts of first John, for example, um, there's going to be a lot of material and it's all gold and it'll all help you even if you don't use it all for this week's sermon or next week's sermon you'll grow as you read it and you get to keep these things for your later ministry and we should always be reading that way anyway um but because of the the sermonic form and the length of the sermons then uh it is going to require a little bit of work and planning ahead so that's probably why he hasn't gotten our attention as, as others have, but he ought to for the quality of the writing. And when you say that in terms of usefulness for devotional reading, you know, I know many of our listeners are not pastors, they're not seminarians, and they're not going to be. They're not going to be conducting a sermon series or serious academic research, but Manton would be useful for even the casual reader, a couple pages here and there a day uh, to work through um, a volume of his works. Um, yeah. Something. Yeah. And that's one advantage of reading sermons as well is they're often about 10 pages. Yeah. So, um, you can digest that. Mm-hmm. Exactly right. Uh, I want to back up a little bit and just, uh, my academic bone is uh, tingling here. Where might scholarship make inroads into understanding more comprehensively the ministry and theology of Manton? What kinds of questions should scholars be asking about Thomas Manton and his relationships to other theologians of the time? Are there particular, uh, let's say, loci or subjects of theology that would be really worth investigating and even utilizing Manton's works toward answering particular questions? 
Well, that's pretty, um, pretty open-ended, especially because so little work has been done. Um, so you can, you can almost do anything for the time period. I mean, you can do, um, Manton and religious politics at the time. And I mentioned him having a, a falling out with Owen. They actually disagreed on, uh, public policy and the nature of the Commonwealth and, uh, Republicanism and basically, um, uh, their support of Oliver Cromwell's son. And uh, Owen was not in favor of uh, the son taking over, and Manton was. So there are political things where you could see um, the, uh, the tumultuous difficulties and, and changing politics of the time and get into that aspect. Um, on a theological level, one thing that's uh, interested me, as you know, is the Trinity, and uh, I've actually... An interesting subject. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and especially the practical use of the Trinity. Yeah. And I've found that, again, not all Puritans or uh, authors in general are created equal. And while Owen has a robust Trinitarian theology and, and his colleague Goodwin does, many others didn't necessarily beyond direct treatments of the Trinity. But Manton, when you read him, say, on John 17, uh, even though in John 17 the text has very little about the Holy Spirit, for example, uh, Manton's sermons are thoroughly and self-consciously Trinitarian and practically Trinitarian throughout. And so one thing uh, I've been working on very slowly is looking at Manton's Trinitarian preaching and the practical use of the Trinity even in texts like Psalm 119 and James and others where you wouldn't necessarily expect the Trinitarian emphasis and maybe some of his contemporaries didn't have. And part of this goes back to my comment about theological balance. So what Manton was aiming at was not just the issue that grabbed his attention and not even just the text at hand, but is this presenting a balanced view of the gospel and communion with God as a whole and, and I think that Trinitarian aspect of that illustrates the point. So you've got his politics, you've got theological emphases. I've mentioned the Trinity, but you could fill this in with, with many others as a window into uh, classic Reformed theology and Puritanism. You could, uh, you could also deal with uh, his, his friendships and relationships with the Westminster Divines. And uh, you could also get into... Um, you know, dealing with the religious establishment after the restoration of the king, uh, where now uh, Manton, as a Presbyterian, but also independents and Congregationalists, would have all been lumped into one category of of nonconformists because they would not submit to the the prayer book. So, in terms of academic studies and history. The field is wide open, and I could just keep. And he's things. a significant enough figure with a voluminous enough body of work that you could justify doing uh, academic work, or at least article length work on on any of these subjects. Whereas not every single yeah. Puritan is going to warrant that that degree of scrutiny. Yeah, and and doing academic study on someone like Manton is both uh, needed, profitable on the one side, but also daunting on the other. Um, partly because you want someone who's influential enough to justify the study, 
you also want someone who's written broadly enough uh, to to draw widely from their works as well as from their contemporaries and opponents. Um, but the other side of that is when no one else has written on someone and you're one of the first ones doing it, you have very little to interact with. And it's hard to just start something by yourself. Um, and you'd have to, to draw parallels to studies of other people. Um, but also, I, th I think the mistake is that the little academic work that's been done on Manton has focused on particular things, like his commentary on James, rather than, for example, his, the development of his life and thought as a whole, and tracing all 22 volumes instead of just a narrow section. Well, I know you're passionate about that. Your latest book on John Owen, Trajectories in Reformed Thought, was exactly that kind of project in a digestible volume, tracing out the developments in, in Owen's own life, how that reflected the broader Puritan movement and the time. And uh, I don't think we've done an interview on that book. Maybe we will at some point. And uh, after I get a chance to read it, or at least skim through it myself. There you go. So speaking about a daunting task, the massive size of Manton's works presents something of a formidable challenge to the aspiring reader, not just the scholar, but just the casual reader or the seminary reader like myself. And and I, I got Manton's works on that, that really steal of a bargain that Banner Truth was running when they first uh, published it. And they're sitting on my shelf and just looking at them is like, man, will I ever get through all 22 volumes of this thing? Um, but man's works are not necessarily unique in this. I mean, I look around my own office or I walk through the stacks across the hallway in the seminary library and, and I see 10 volumes of Perkins works and 16 volumes of John Owen and six volumes of the works of John Knox and 10 volumes of B.B. Warfield and nine volumes of John Witherspoon and don't even get me started on the anti and post Nicene Fathers set. I mean, that 20 some volumes there. I mean, a common question that students and readers pose then regarding each of these sets is where do I begin? And not yeah. even am I ever going to read them? For, I think for many of us, it's like a foregone conclusion. No, I'm not going to read them all, but I'll pick and choose what's useful. But where do I even begin if I just want to get an introduction to these authors? And as someone with an above average familiarity with Manton and his works, where would you recommend the typical reader begin at least with Manton? Yeah, and I, I can't say that I've read everything Manton's done uh, either, though I have read a good bit of it. Uh, so there may be some that could give uh, a better answer. But uh, based on my experience, let me make a general comment, especially for what you've described. This is going to apply a lot more directly to, to ministers and ministerial students who have lots of sets of books and have collected them on purpose in order to make them useful. Well, let me say this, uh, and this is not just to you, but to all. If you spend the money and you take the time to purchase the books, you also need to take the time to use the books. And like you said, that may not mean using everything, but this is the point where um, as pastors plan ahead a bit and pray over not just what they're doing, but what they're doing next they'll better be able to use the books they have. So in other words, if the only thing you're doing is just flying by the seat of your pants week to week, uh, which, which happens to all of us at some point, 
we will probably not be using the libraries we've invested in. If we're looking ahead at the next three or four sermons or things that are coming up later in books we're preaching or future books we want to preach and set aside time on a weekly basis where we can pray through the books we have and read them well and start planning ahead, in my experience, that's the only way that you're going to use things like all the sets you've mentioned, including Thomas Manton. And so there has to be a bit of planning, forethought, and prayerful time management. And notice I keep throwing prayer into this all over the place because I think prayer is absolutely vital. Uh, We should be praying for wisdom as we buy books, as we look through our libraries of the books we already have, and as we read the books, we should be doing them in fellowship with the Lord himself and ultimately seeking the Spirit's blessing Uh, on our hearts and our studies and increasing our love for Christ and spilling over into our preaching and our ministry and our families and our lives in general. So I'm, I'm throwing that in on purpose as, as we're thinking through this, but if you're looking through Manton or you're looking through any of the sets you mentioned, I think one thing that is useful to do if you're teaching or preaching is to look through the tables of contents and indices regularly within these sets and it usually doesn't take a lot of time and the more often you do it the more you know what you have and you might realize for example as as I did recently uh, you're preaching on Philippians 3 and uh, the need for faith in the Son of God and to be uh, found in his righteousness and not our own uh, and to count all things lost for his sake And then realize Manton has a a little book on the life of faith. So maybe this is going to be helpful and at least expand my sermon application. Or if I'm preaching on the Sermon on the the Mount, I'm not going to use all of his material on the temptation of Christ, which comes from uh, that section uh, prior to. I said Sermon on the Mount, but I, I meant there the temptation, Matthew 4, not 5. And uh, but, but you could find material related to the Sermon on the Mount as well. And basically, if I'm preaching on that section of Scripture, I may take one sermon with a big section, and I'm not going to preach it piece by piece on sin and temptation, how Christ overcomes all for us, so that in the Spirit we can overcome temptation in Christ. But what I am going to do is plan ahead a bit, read Manton on it, take the the key issues that I pro- I benefited from the most. And the beauty of it is the rest of it, as I prayed through it, I get to keep it. And maybe I don't use it in my sermon on Matthew 4, but I do later when Satan recedes to the background, but Christ is still assaulted and tempted by him on the cross or other points. And it's going to stand out to me now because I've put in the time and the planning to read Manton or somebody else. So I think planning ahead, looking through your tables of contents, your scripture indices, topic indices, um, topics of books that may help you, and look at your sermon preparation as short-term and long-term. So short-term is this Sunday's sermon. Uh, Long-term is asking questions like, am I going to be a better preacher next year? And in five years from now, 
Well, the only way you're going to do that is by constant prayer, exercising your gifts, and reading deeply and broadly as you do it. Or going to Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary <laughs> for your ministerial education. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> Dr. McGraw, what writings or sermons of Manton's are especially significant to you and why? You've already mentioned the Isaiah 53 uh, sermons and the Temptation of Christ sermons, uh, but uh, beyond the occasion that prompted reading them as part of your ministry um, many, many years ago, uh, what writings or sermons have really stuck out to you, even perhaps a bit more recently, as you've dug into Manton's works or been reminded of them with Banner republishing the set? Well, my answer to this question is going to be somewhat subjective, as uh, the answer to such questions always are, because part of it depends on what the Lord is doing with us at the time and where we are. And I'm sure listeners have had the same experience I have of reading something that seems profound at one time and then going back to it later and it seems mundane and vice versa, reading something that just never struck us or helped us and then going back to it and thinking is the best thing we've ever read. So with that caveat and certain things that strike us at, at different times in God's providence, uh, the sermons on John 17, as I mentioned, have been extraordinarily useful I think there are about two volumes in, in the middle of the set. I think he has, if I remember correctly, about 47 sermons. If that sounds like a lot, his contemporary Anthony Burgess had 150-something on the same text. Um, no offense to those who have reprinted Burgess, but Burgess has pure gold and a lot of dross. And uh, it's a bit tedious to go through all those sermons, and, and I have done so. Uh, Manton, even though it's 47 sermons, is pure gold from beginning to end. And there's, there's less repetition than another author like Burgess. There is uh, uh, great theological material, especially on the devotional use of the Trinity and even the way in which the unity and diversity in the church reflects the unity and diversity in the Godhead because of how Jesus prayed for his church. There's lots of things on how Jesus is not only the one who intercedes for us, but a model for prayer. Uh, so he's got a lot of practical helps to look to the uniqueness of Christ's intercession, but also to look to the Savior who is a master at prayer to teach us how to pray. And so uh, there are many, many significant things there other favorites that have rightly stood out uh, to many people have been the sermons on Psalm 119, which in this set is um, four volumes instead of Banner's earlier three. So that's a lot of material. Psalm 119 is inherently meditative, and these sermons are as well. And so there's wonderful material on the law of God. In light of what I've said about his context of antinomianism, uh, Psalm 119 is a great place to see some of that and see how a man who's concerned about a contemporary issue would preach a text in still a balanced way and devotional way to a church. And so those sermons are excellent. And, and again, pure gold beginning to end. Um, the Hebrews 11 sermons on uh, the examples of faith is also very uh, important. And so 
those have been reprinted often, and I'd highly recommend them. And just a couple of other things. Uh, on the Beaten Path would be uh, the commentaries on James and Jude, which are more like Bible commentaries and have uh, been widely useful for their exegesis and their theology and devotion. James is particularly interesting because of Manton's robust Christology, and there are very few explicit references to Christ in James. So if you wanted to see a good way to um, uh, treat Scripture and unique books of Scripture in their own context, but still pull in a broader theological perspective from the whole Bible, the commentary on James is a great example of that. Um, and, and the answer to this question will partly depend on what text you're reading and preaching and what you're interested in. Um, but maybe some off the beaten path, uh, his sermons on first John three, which mostly focus on seeing Christ in glory, uh, and being transformed to his likeness are very practical focus uh, on the glory of Christ as the centerpiece of heaven and how that affects our lives now and sets forth a very Trinitarian piety. Um, interestingly, uh, Manton frequently interacts with Islam, uh, including in those sermons, and basically describes the uh, Muslim view of paradise and all the outward pleasures uh, perfectly reflecting all the desires of an unregenerate man's heart. And he uses that as a contrast to Christ himself being the center of glory and how that reflects the desires of a regenerate heart. So in, in a sense, his interaction with things like Islam are not only inherently useful, but contemporary and issues that we address now. So those are some examples. Dr. McGraw, that's all extremely helpful, and I'm glad that you were willing and able to set aside some time to come into the studio today and to talk through what I think is, and what I'm now even more convinced is the case, an important set and a valuable resource, not only in my library, but in the libraries of many who have just recently acquired this, or perhaps are thinking about getting it, or thinking about gifting it to a seminary student. Now, I wish I could say that we were giving away a set of Manton's works on the podcast today, but unfortunately, my budget just doesn't allow for it <laughs> this time. But I highly recommend that you visit the Banner of Truth's website and, and consider, um, consider Manton's works. If you're a pastor or a seminarian or someone who happens to love the Puritans or historical theology or rich uh, Christology or Trinitarian piety, uh, this would be an invaluable resource to you. Dr. McGraw, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Zach. Thank you for listening to this edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. To help ensure that we can continue to produce content from a Reformed and Confessional Presbyterian perspective, please consider making a gift of support in any amount at gpts.edu donate. For more information about Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, please visit gpts.edu.